Hi, I'm Linus, and welcome back to the Interintellect Hostcast. Interintellect is reinventing the art of the French salon for the 21st century. We host conversations on a wide range of topics, from technology to philosophy to art and more, in both online settings and in cities all over the world. Check out all of Interintellect's events at interintellect.com. In this very special episode, Max Cantor serves as our guest host, where he interviews novelist and journalist Ashley Rinsberg about his new book, The Grey Lady Waked, how the New York Times misreporting, distortions, and fabrications radically alter history. They chat about Ashley's motivations for writing the book, the structural incentives that have led to misreporting at the Times, the rise of the celebrity journalist, and much more. And now, onto the episode. Max and Ashley, so great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, uh, Max, uh, why don't you take it away? Excited for this conversation. Hi. So Ashley, again, thank you uh, for making your time. Uh, reading The Grey Lady Winked was, it was definitely a little eye-opening. So how did you come to this position where you wrote The Grey Lady Winked? Tell us a little bit about your background. At the time, I was... Um... I had just arrived in Israel. I had I had graduated college. Um, I went to Cornell University. I studied philosophy of science and history of science. And I worked went to work at the Internet Archive in San Francisco. After that, which is the the people who do the Wayback Machine that save all the all the world's web pages. And that was quite a cool experience, you know, is the, the idea there of like making knowledge accessible. And today we've come to rely on the archive, the internet archive as a way of checking for um, accuracy or to check what, what someone might have written on a website, you know, five years ago, they're claiming something else. Um, very intriguing idea to keep, to keep the integrity, keep that, that chain of custody of knowledge and information. After that, quickly got a bit bored of, of San Francisco, um, and then I went. Um, I got a job on a boat on a on a small yacht as a deckhand, and the deal was that I would work as a deckhand, help to sail the boat from Italy to Greece, and in return I would get room and board. And after that, I just kind of continued to go eastward. I, that was always in my nature to kind of check out what's around the next bend and to see. The, the next phase of the adventure and that brought me to Israel and it was there that I was reading um, the great work of World War II history the rise and fall of the Third Reich by William Shire amazing journalist one of uh, Mur one of Edward Murrow's Murrow's boys in Europe at the time and I came across that little kind of innocuous seeming footnote that he has somewhere in that book saying uh, at the outbreak of hostilities of World War II, where, where the first the first newspaper printed that day in the New York Times, that was September 1st, 1939, the lead story of the Times claimed that Poland had invaded Germany, and Germany was just responding to Polish belligerence. And that was like, <laughs> like the, re the record screeching kind of moment, you're like, wait, excuse me? And that kind of really got me just diving into that that assertion to see if it was true to see what was the context and I, I found that it was true the new york times did print that and then just wondering how that could have ever been the case so that that set me off on the journey all right i actually have a lot of questions about that chapter we'll get to that later sure just before we go further i'm curious how you would describe your political beliefs and biases just I'd like to kind of frame the conversation and let's get that out of the way in the beginning. Sure. Um, I would call myself an independent. Like I've been all over the map. Uh, first of all, I, you know, on U.S. politics, if that's what, what we're talking about, I assume that's what it is um, that you mean. But, you know, I was at the time in college and after college, <laughs> what you would expect. I, I supported, I voted for Gore in that, in, against Bush. I was really was not in favor of Bush. <clears throat> I very much supported Kerry in that election um was disappointed by that at the time and um you know was fairly left of center at the time in subsequent years i think i bounced around a bit more on the spectrum but i don't or the spectrum has bounced around a bit more on me 
I think is more accurate. And I, I think we've kind of all felt that fact where like, you know, people who we once identified as like squarely on the, on the center left liberals are now being called right wing. <laughs> so that's kind of where I feel like I am, which is the best way to put it would be independent. Um, for me, it's really about the values. I'm not a, like a reflexive, reflexively, pro or anti on any given issue, I think it's all about the complexities. And I think that's what's missing in American politics, where, you know, when you look at the gun debate right now, and you're like, you know, there's, there is truth on both sides. Of course, there is a problem with guns. I think it's obvious. If, even if I were positioning myself as a Republican or a conservative Republican, I would think I would look at that issue and say, America has got a problem. You cannot deny it. You cannot, but then you also have to accept and embrace the fact that there are human beings who are pulling the trigger of those guns. It's not the guns shooting themselves. So this is what I think is missing in American politics is that and, it's that three little word to say, it can be both. It can be that women should have the right to choose, which I believe, and that abortion should have some kind of restraints and restrictions that are, are based in some, you know, moral principle. It, I think it's an and, but America tends to go either or. And, it, and you know, that's how I approach politics. I, I love that framing that American politics is very binary, either or, but really it's, it's and like there are, I mean, I hate to, I hate to borrow the very poisoned phrase, but there are good people on both sides of most issues. I'm not obviously referring to a neo-Nazi rally, but for most issues in the United States, there, there are good people on both sides. And I think we often fail to see that. And actually, the reason I ask is because when we tend to think of problems in the media today, a lot of times that conversation comes down to like, well, is this like left biased or right biased, right? You know, obviously Fox News is one way and PR is another way. But one of the things that I found interesting reading your book is that there wasn't and this might have changed in recent years, but there isn't really a consistent like, oh, the New York Times is always on the left side of an issue or something like it, it kind of bounced back and forth and not necessarily symmetrically, but there's something there. So let's get into the gray lady wing. If you could in one or two sentences briefly, what, what is the TLDR? What is the problem with the New York Times? Why did you write that book? The problem Beyond with the, the Times um, is that, you know, you kind of put your finger on it, which is that you know, if you read the book, and this is a response I've gotten quite a lot, which people say, well, in the mid or late 1930s, they're kind of, the their Berlin Bureau is like obviously pro-Nazi in a lot of ways. And five years earlier in Stalinist Russia, they seem to be pro-communist. How can that be? And that that's something that happens again and again. And the answer is very simple. They're not pro-Nazi. They're not pro-communist. They're not pro-Viet um, Cong or pro-Cash. They are pro-New York Times. That's the thing to understand. This is an institution that has been controlled by the same family for 120 years. This is a few dozen people who effectively pull the levers on the world's most powerful influence machine, they play a role in shaping not just the policy agenda and the news agenda, but shaping how we understand reality. And that is an incredibly great amount of power for a small amount of people to possess. This is a dynasty we're talking about. Their overriding interest is in maintaining their power and prestige and wealth, like it is in all dynasties. And that is the real problem is that whatever might be going on in, in the newsroom, and sometimes it's good, most times it's, it's at least fair, sometimes it's bad, but it doesn't really matter so much because at the end of the day, the people calling the shots are this clan of uh, the, Souls, the Ox Soulsberger family members. And they actually, if you look at even their, you know, for example, you take their, the New York Times is a very big push toward um, diversity, social, ethnic um, diversity, and their championing of that kind of opening of society to other people. But then you look at who their publisher has been for the last 120 years, and it always has been a male heir of that dynasty. From male heir to male heir, we are talking about a white man who is worth tens of millions of dollars at minimum, who inherits that throne. And the last time they had a changing of the guard, that would have been, I think, um, by now, four or five years ago, 
there wasn't even a woman or a non-white Ox Sulzberger member in contention. It was between three white male cousins. That says everything about the New York Times, because while it's very wonderful for them to market the 1619 project as their gift to America and the world of ideas, the reality is that they don't practice what they preach. And that's not a problem for them. That's the point. All right. So let's steel man the Oxholzbergers for a second and say they believe that they are a paragon of journalistic integrity. Whether or not they are, let's assume that they believe they are. Is there a case that a lot of their reporting, you know, which, tracing through most of your chapters, it, it could really be described as pro, pro government for whatever government the bureau happens to be in, right? Whether it's Berlin or Moscow and Ukraine or, you know, the Viet Cong or the Manhattan Project, right? They're basically just towing the government line. Is there an argument that they have to do that to maintain access, and they kind of have to? give a little to get a little, like they have to toe the government line on radiation poisoning so they can maintain access so they can cover the government and speak truth to power in other cases. It's not that they, I mean, that's, that is generally true of media that you have to play the game to maintain access, but their goal and the outcome was not maintaining access. It was being number one in the news market. And that's what it was all about. So what you referenced there about the Manhattan Project and the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, basically they made a deal. They made a a deal with the Department of War at the time to carry the Department of War's line on radiation poisoning, which is that there was no such thing as radiation poisoning as a result of the atomic bombs. That is something that would have been very concerning to the American public faced with this new horrible weapon. And in exchange, it's not that they got access that they needed to report on the story, because lots of people, lots of news organizations were seeking access to report on the story. They got to put their their reporter on one of the planes on the bombing armada that dropped the bomb in Nagasaki. That was not something that the Washington Post was able to do or any other newspaper in the entire country because no other newspaper made a deal with the Department of War to spread a lie about the bomb. So what they were trading there was not access. They were trading the ability to be in in the number one spot and to keep that spot throughout. So that's a question that I had reading the book is about other news media organizations. There's there's some mentions, and obviously the book has, you can't have infinite scope, so you have to, to focus it. But how does the New York Times compare to other newspapers back in the day, to newspapers today and, and other media today, right? I mean, obviously the landscape today is incredibly diverse, and I don't mean in terms of skin color or gender, but I mean diverse in terms of channels, right? Everything from Substack to podcasts to... Facebook ads, which <laughs> seems to be a source of news for a decent size of the population. How, how does it compare? How did it compare historically and how does it compare today? In some of the historical examples that I looked at, it, I mean, it was really clear. Like when, when, for example, the New York Times was breathlessly praising the, the Nazi Olympics of 1936 in Berlin as the greatest sporting event of all time, the Washington Post was bemoaning it. They were lamenting that that the Nazis were able to pull off this fascist spectacle for the sake of the basically the Western world, the free world, trying to fool the free world into thinking that this was a place that was characterized in any way by justice and freedom when it was obviously not. And when the New York Times goes out and says, this is the greatest sporting event of all time, and we should trust that this new regime was doing all it could to to just impose order and nothing more. And the Washington Post is saying, uh, no, not exactly. This is, this is a Nazi spectacle. This is a propaganda spectacle. And that was really clear from the record. And in other cases, you just really, that I covered in the book, at least, I mean, you know, with the famous case of Walter Durante, it, who covered up, denied the Ukraine famine in 1931, 1932, that killed somewhere around 5 million people, which was a campaign of murder, genocide by Stalin. You know, we famously, Gareth Jones was a reporter who was exposing the Ukraine famine for what it was, who was reporting on it. And uh, he was not the only one, but he was one. 
And he was murdered probably by the KGB while Durante got a Pulitzer and an exclusive interview with Joseph Stalin himself. So again, you see that there were others who were providing counter reporting to what the Times was doing in, in these instances of malfeasance. Uh, the Times got rewarded for their efforts as that was the intent uh, of doing that. And the other reporters did not. They didn't get the access to Stalin. They didn't get access to the Nazi brass or to Fidel Castro, um, or to watching from a, the bombing Almada, the bomb being dropped on Nagasaki. They just didn't have that. And this is something people ask me all the time. They, they say to me, if New York Times has been doing all this stuff for so long, how is it possible that they still have this reputation for being the best? And I'm, my response is, it's a bit ironic, but it's because they've done these things that they have that reputation, that they've been able to stay in, in that number one seat, that they've been able to pull in almost twice as many Pulitzer Prizes as the next competitor, which is the Washington Post. Um, it's because they do these things. And a lot of these people I've just mentioned, even in the short amount of time, won Pulitzers for, for that reporting, including the guy who called the Berlin Olympics the greatest sporting event of all times. Yeah, I was kind of shocked reading the book. I think it was Durante. There were calls from the New York Times to like return the Pulitzer. And reading the book, I got the impression that it's kind of like asking a priest to find fallibility within the Catholic Church. Like even when it's there, you don't even want to admit that it's a thing. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, I'm, I'm reading that. I'm thinking, why not just return it, right? It, it's patently obvious at the time. And you can kind of, I've always found that admitting a little bit of fault gets you out of, admitting greater fault in a way. I mean, if you're being totally amoral about it, why do you think they just refuse to backtrack or admit mistakes or, or return the Pulitzer? I mean, it doesn't cost them anything to do that at this point. Yeah, it's a good question. There's a lot of reasons. Number one, you have to look at the timing. The, that Those calls came around, around 2003. So this is in the midst of a complete shit show, firestorm for the New York Times. This is right after the weapons of mass destruction scandal where the New York Times is like corroborating false Bush administration claims that there were WMDs in Iraq on the basis of virtually nothing. Um, this was right around the time of the Jason Blair scandal where you've got this young on the rise reporter making stuff up, just making up, <laughs> making up reports. Like he's just writing like fiction on the pages, of the, including the front page of the New York Times and not just one or two, dozens of stories. So you've got this point of the New York Times, this is a make or break moment. They're running out of money. They're running to Carlos Slim, the Mexican telecom billionaire to borrow money from him. That is not the moment where you wanna start returning a Pulitzer Prize. And I think in parallel to that, or in addition to that, there was also this notion that you don't wanna open the can of worms to say, okay, well, well, that was Durante. Let's think about the next Pulitzer. Let's maybe fast forward a few years to uh, Berlin. Someone like me comes along and says, "Why, if you return Durante, why not return um, the the one given the Pulitzer given to Otto Tolitius? Or why don't you give back the Pulitzer given to uh, William Lawrence, who is the the, the reporter did not who denied radiation poisoning in Japan? Why don't you deny, Why don't you give back?" the the what else was there this there there's the you know at least half a dozen pulitzers that that I've I, I don't want you to have to give away every spoiler in your book by listing all the pulitzers <laughs> they have to return so. i i actually did a great blog a great twitter thread on it which went viral so if anyone's interested go check it spoiler out. spoiler warning <laughs> when pulitzers are awarded are there and this is displaying my ignorance of the news media. Are there other nominees? This is it like the Oscar where whoever wins best picture, you can say, well, these are the other five, four or five contenders. Like, is it, could you look at the Pulitzers that they won and see, well, what would be the number two story? Who would be number two or three in line for that Pulitzer? I don't think that's something that is published in that, in that way. I, there might be for books, a short list, but I don't think they do that for, um, for news reporting. I just think it would be interesting to see all of these, all, all the uh, Pulitzers that may or may not be deserved to see who who, who would be second place for those for those Pulitzers. Yeah, well, I mean, some of it you can you can think and imagine because we know, for example, back to your earlier question of of comparative reporting, when the Times is denying radiation poisoning in Japan, you know, John uh, what's his name Hershey, right? The the guy who wrote um, Hiroshima, he he had he had gone there, he had gone to Japan in the days after the bombing. 
uh, as we know from his great book, and he was documenting radiation poisoning on the ground. And he was not the only one. And those were not the people who won that prize for that year. Uh, John, John Hersey, right? So, you know, it was at the expense of others who were not given those riches and rewards. So it is, it is kind of this two-pronged um, ethical issue. I have one question for you. I think, I believe the New York Times got rid of their public editor position Correct. two years ago. Mm-hmm. Let's say one of the Ox Soulsburgers read your book and said, you know what? I want someone who's going to keep me in line. Ashley Rinsberg, would you, would you be the public editor for the New York Times? You were offered mm-hmm. that role. Is that something you'd be interested in? Personally, um, no, I wouldn't. That's not something I'd personally want to do. I think, you know, there are people who have done that job. Margaret Sullivan was, a, I believe, the last one. And Clark Hoyt was before her. Um, it's an immensely challenging job, in part because you're sort of being asked to be this kind of journalistic auditor of the newspaper that you work for which, you know, you're only going to be able to go so far with that in, in that role. You know, they, they, this is something I've also thought and spoken and written about with regard to, for example, their media reporting, because they had Ben Smith was their media uh, columnist until recently. And this is the kind of thing where, you know, for example, he did this really big piece about how China is wielding influence over media organizations, small media organizations around the world, and showing how in Italy and Africa and all these places, Chinese money is being used to influence reporting, which is quite a claim to make if you are in the media, you're accusing other journalists of a very serious charge. And something that I pointed out is that he never looked at how China was influencing the Times. Uh, The New York Times has a very deep, long business relationship with China. They've been trying to get into that market for the last 10 years. Their publisher at the time, Arthur, Arthur Sulzberger Jr., the father of the current publisher, went to China, met with, I believe, with the president of China to, to discuss this issue. How can we get New York, the New York Times into the Chinese market? So that is not something Ben Smith was covering in his column about Chinese influence over the media. And that's kind of, I mean, of course he's not going to, but that's sort of the point, right? Is that you're, you're going to be very limited to what you can say about this corporation. It, again, it's like when you've got someone working at Facebook or wherever it's going to be, or Google or whatever, their ability to crit- criticize the company from within the company, not as a whistleblower, but still while working there is going to be quite limited. And I think that's kind of the effect that happened, that, that we saw the phenomenon we saw with the role of the public editor. All right. So one the reason I bring that up is because I'm curious how you would change the times given that option, right? So let's let's say hypothetically you were forced to take that role for one year. You contract renewed, but it also you had like let's say university tenure. You could not be removed short of being convicted of a felony. So you had one year. What would you do? What changes would you like to see? I, w- I think the biggest thing, the biggest thing anyone could do in that role would be to start reporting on the New York Times as a business, the New York Times company. And not just that, okay, you know, there was a lot of reporting when the Times bought billions of dollars worth of media companies around the country and it would turn out to be a boondoggle. Not that. The stuff that nobody reports on, which is like, who are these Salzburger people? You never see them in the media ever. And this is something um, Balaji Srinivasan talks about. He's a um, crypto influencer, um, just kind of a... a, a, a Let's give him credit. He's a lot more than just a crypto influencer. (laughs) That's his current chosen Twitter personality. Yeah, no, I was going to say he's kind of a a public philosopher um, in many ways and um, a huge influence on many, many people and Mm -hmm. a a very, very astute uh, media critic. And Mm -hmm. this is something he talks about a lot, which is that we often hear about Zuckerberg, about Jack Dorsey, about Elon Musk, of course, we have deep reporting. We have the New York Times doing this like massive article about Elon Musk's roots in South Africa and the effect that apartheid might've had on his, on his personality or whatever. You never, ever, ever see such a thing about Arthur Sulzberger, ever. It's never happened. And I think that's a place where I would begin to say, let's start looking at who this family actually is. Let's look at how they influence media. Let's look at how they're connected into politics, into policy, 
how, who, where was Arthur Sulzberger uh, meeting, who is he meeting with in China in whatever year that was, 2009 or eight or 10 or whatever it was, besides the president, what were the back channel meetings that he was doing? Are, do they still exist? I would put a lot of focus on reporting on the family that controls that newspaper um, as the first big step. All right. So let's say I'm a competitor, let's say I'm the Washington Post or even Fox News, right? Why do you think those organizations stay away from the family? It seems like that should be very juicy for them. I think the, there's kind of two different questions there. One would be that in the case of the Post, it's a club. Elite media, or, you know, New York-based or Washington-based, but essentially connected, tied to New York. It's a, it's a gentleman's club, and I don't think they would ever do that. I don't think they would ever want to start that kind of war. I think there's a kind of mutually assured destruction element there where that if Sulzberger goes after, you know, Bezos or like, or the former ownership, um, the Grams or whatever that, you know, it would just be never ending. I think that's on that side. And in terms of, of why does Fox not do it? It, you know, it's just not the kind of thing that, that Fox Fox's audience is really going to consume. Like Fox is doing really top line breaking news stuff. They're not doing those like, in depth, like, you know, four part series where each article is 4,000 words that the times does when it, when it puts someone in their crosshairs. Right. And I think it kind of just, there's just a, an absence of that kind of in-depth reporting it, when it's not within the, the New York media bubble. And this is not just about this one issue. It's about a lot of issues. I mean, why do we not have any journalistic task forces or or editorial these these brave editorial commitments to finding out where this pandemic came from? Was a question we still have no answer to. We don't have that. We did have it for Trump and, and the Russia collusion. You have task forces. You've got committees, uh, reporting committees. You've got teams. They they really put a lot of resource into that story, and. On this other story, they, they haven't put any. And that leaves a real dearth. There's nobody else that can do that. There's no substacker. There's no like right-wing news channel that's going to be able to put that kind of investigative resource into a story that requires that level of nuance and depth. So I think that's a big part of it. All right. I want to talk about some of the specific chapters that you have in your book. And one thing that I notice is up through Vietnam, there's the bias that we already discussed, where basically the news, newsroom is biased in favor of whatever government runs the bureau, runs the area the bureau happens to be located, right? They do for access. However, if we look at uh, the Mohammed al Dara case in Israel, uh, even some of the Gulf War II vets and PTSD, you see, you see a bit of a shift away from that. Yes, strictly speaking, there were reporters in Israel, uh, I forget his name, who went to join the UNDP and had some issues there. But has there been a shift away from kind of top down, we just want access, we support the New York Times to kind of like this, the junior most staff, the empowerment of almost like the junior most staffer fresh out of Columbia Journalism School that's kind of pushing their angle? I mean, obviously, the New York Times Slack team has gotten a lot of attention lately. Is that true? Is that overblown? And I'm, I'm wondering, how did that shift happen? You know, traditionally, like taking the, I don't want to say anti-Israel side, but like not the Israeli government's position is not the way you endear yourself to like American politicians. And I'm wondering if you could speak mm -hmm. about, has the power shifted in some way, not necessarily for the better, but still shifted? No, I think Israel is just a pure exception. Um, and that is, again, ties straight back to the Ox Sulzberger family, who um, their origins are in, they were German Jews initially no longer are, but they, they brought with them a very, very specific, very pointed approach to Jewish identity that really did not consider the Jews to be a people, a nation, or an ethnicity. It was just Judaism, which is a, a manner of worship, just like an American would worship in a church. A Jew is an American who happens to worship in a, not a church, a synagogue. Um, for them, the word Jew had no meaning. And they went so far as to forbid the word Jew from being used in the newspaper in all but the most necessary essential cases. They opposed, vocally opposed Jewish immigration from Europe during the Holocaust, during World War II. They, were, they penned many an editorial against it. And they also prevented Jews from rising up to the top of the masthead again and again. And this is something that's been well documented. Yeah, yeah and, and reading that, I was wondering if that was... 
I hate to keep using the word steel, man, but I wonder if that was almost a good faith attempt to avoid a perception of bias, right? I mean, you know, I grew up as Jewish in the United States in, in the 80s. So the amount of anti-Semitism I faced in my daily life was basically zero, right? Whereas my my parents grew up, my dad grew up in the 20s. And for them, it was important to like, let's just assimilate. Let's like not make it a thing. Like let's, let's be American. And I'm wondering, sure. was there an aspect of an overcorrection to avoid being, being seen as like, the the New York Times, for lack of a more acceptable term. Um, yeah, I, probably there was. That I think that was the sort of the motivating uh, the motivating principle. There was to not be seen as a Jewish newspaper. But I guess the was question also, is: was it was it well intentioned, misplaced benevolence, or was it malicious? You know, again, I, I come back to the word "and," and I, I think there was probably both factors at work, and part of that was that. Uh, yes, they they were they were in a precarious position in the world. Uh, there was a rising anti-Semitism in, throughout the 1920s and 30s in the United States, including in New York City. And that's you know you don't want to stick your head too far out. But at the same time, there was definitely a drive not to be seen as a Jewish newspaper because that would not be good for business. So right. that where that's where the thing that that line starts to blur a little bit. And you say you're going to force editors with Jewish sounding names to use acronyms to try to kind of hide their Jewish identity and prevent your most brilliant editors from becoming senior editors because of their Jewish background. And there is a motive there that is tied to your self-interest, which is your business. And again, staying number one. So is it only one thing? No, I don't think it was only one thing. But I think the outcomes were just as mixed, you know, where where you have someone like Theodore Bernstein, who's recognized by all to be a great, great editor who was not allowed to become uh, the top editor of the paper because he was Jewish. And, you know, on the flip side, you also have the, the phenomenon of the Berlin Bureau, which is printing stories the Nazis found so, so flattering that they would just read them over Nazi propaganda broadcasts without changing. Them. So, you know, I think you end up with a very problematic outcome when you put that kind of decision making into a news process. Makes a lot of sense. It's, it's hard to wrap my brain around that in a way. And I think that's because, as I said, you know, I grew up in, I was born in 1980 in the Northeast United States, right? I, I faced basically zero anti-Semitism. I mean, maybe a comment less than three times in my life, right? Basically zero anti-Semitism. And for me, I, you know, I, I very much consider my ethnicity, you know, Jewish. 23 me says I'm 99.9% Ashkenazi blood. Even though I'm I'm non-practicing and I'm completely secular, you know, I, my nationality is American, my ethnicity is Jewish, and my religion is non or atheist, whatever. So it's 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 interesting for me to like put myself in that position mm-hmm. to like see how you'd have to make those choices that are very completely foreign. I'd like to speak about like the media in general and the American consumer of media. So I had a New York Times subscription. I canceled it for not exactly the reasons you outlined in your book, but I found the reporting to be subpar or especially one of the problems is like enumerate. You mentioned school shooting or you mentioned the gun problems in America, right? And one of the things I'm always struck by is how, and this is not just the New York Times, how much the media not necessarily misrepresents, but fails to contextualize numbers, right? When we say like there's been 10 school shootings this year, I, I have no idea what the actual number is. But you never hear the context of out of, you know, a hundred thousand schools in this country, like the, you know, the, the actual risk is astronomically low. It's, they're still, they're still tragic, but this is not like, you know, parents should be much more afraid of their children crossing the street than walking in a school. Right. And I, I actually like to call it another podcast blocked and reported was one of the only sources that had good coverage of this where, you know, they're two fairly liberal lefty podcasters and they put that in context, right? Schools are still spectacularly safe. And, you know, the vast majority of gun crimes are not mass shootings with AR-15s. They're, you know, a pistol, a cheap pistol. So what is the American, the concerned citizen to do? If the New York Times isn't it, where, where do I get my knowledge from? How do I, how do I learn? How do I know what's, how do I understand my world? I think you have to become a bit of a, a bit of a news researcher in a way. And I think part of that is about reducing 
your your band of consumption from whatever from let's say it's current being its baseline being 100% to you know 20% of what it is now so we're and and i think that is about flipping the modality from i'm sorry can you can you explain what you mean by the band of consumption i'm a little you're let's say you could you consume like you know you know four hours of news in a day or two hours or whatever it might be take 20% of that and uh, of the time that you spend consuming news and reduce it to 20% and reduce it to from, let's say you're you're reading about 10 or 15 topics in a day, reduce that to two or three. That So what I'm saying is choose depth over breadth. Choose depth in a way that you can go and research. Um, you go find the stories, find the facts, find the sources that are reliable rather than being fed the information as we are currently. And that's about flipping that modality from from browse, which is like kind of a lean, lean back approach to news where it's like, you're just staring at your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed or whatever pops up and um, flipping that to lean, leaning in, which is search to say, okay, what are the most important issues to me? What are the three issues that are just overriding importance? Guns in America might be one, um, you know, something like money and politics might be two, whatever they are. And then find, you know, go and do your homework, like go and become a responsible news citizen so that you're able to identify sources you find reliable and check their work, which again, it doesn't need to be a full-time job, but if you cut out 80% of your news consumption in terms of time, you can dedicate more time to ensuring that what you're reading what you're consuming is accurate that you're able to just fact check like with the podcast you just mentioned look at look at the numbers do a little bit of research it's not that hard like it's a, it's just some googling and it's it's interesting and it's informative and it's empowering when you go and do what essentially what I did with this book which is I didn't do anything particularly magical. I just sat there with the archives for a year, the New York Times archives for a year, cross-checked it with some books and some, you know, articles in, in the news to understand what was really what. So it, it doesn't have to be book length. It doesn't have to be on all these different topics. But if you find the two or three topics that really matter to you, then I think you're able to gain a much clearer perspective on what, where is the narrative and where is the something that is much more close to um, an objective reality, a better approximation of reality. I, I, I hate to just turn this into a journalism one-on-one tutoring session, but let's talk about do, doing the work, doing the research. And I'll find sure. myself, if I read a strange article pops up or some headline doesn't make sense, I'll, I'll usually go to Google. And usually what that means is going to Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Wikipedia has you know, there's some issues, right? I, you know, you can go and make, make edits, but can you talk about Wikipedia? Can you talk about, I mean, it's, it's not quite the same as archive.org. It's not quite the way back machine, but it's related in a way, right? Like it's, it's much more of a, it it describes itself as being much more, you know, bottoms up. Can you talk about some of the, your view of the current state of Wikipedia? Obviously Wikimedians internally have some concerns, but is that a good source? And obviously 6 million articles. So you can, Speak um, yeah, I, I think it generally is not necessarily because you're going to get the right coloring, the right shading on a topic. Um, you might, you might not. I know a lot of people complain about Wikipedia today as being this sort of closed system that pretends to be open because you've got this cadre of elite editors who, you know, really control what goes up and what stays up. Um, but nevertheless, I think Wikipedia gives you it gives you an ability to orient yourself to an issue. It gives you an ability to orient yourself to the timeline, to the players. And the most important thing it does is it gives you an ability to start following uh, the trails. So when you you click on those little uh, um, the little footnote numbers that link you to the bottom of each page where the, the notes are, and you just go through the notes, like start one by one and see where those notes lead you. And that's, those are the breadcrumbs that take you to, um, you know, being able to draw connections between uh, names, places, people, and ideas that let you create a picture in your mind. It's, it's very much like what we see in, you know, cop, cop movie, cop shows about being a detective. Like you're, you're just trying to create a picture that works 
and then you can assess it. Then you can poke it and to see, okay, is my theory accurate here? Does it hold up? Um, but first you need to at least be able to create a picture for what's really going on. And I think that's what, why Wikipedia is such a valuable resource because it gives you a starting point where otherwise you'd just be like, I, I don't know. I have no idea about any of this stuff. That's interesting from like an individual responsibility side. Like, okay, I, I, have, my, I, I have my recipe or my, my process now. But what do you think about, you know, obviously it'd be great if we could get everyone in the country to, to, to quote, do the work, but since we can't, and at some level, it almost feels like we're just boats in a tide or in a, a sea, just following the waves. What do you think about the current wave of media, right? It's become the individual superstar author, right? The, the Glenn Greenwalds, the Barry Weisses, the Nicole Hannah-Jones, you know, it, it become individually much more powerful. What do you think about that? Is that you know, I, I could see positives and negatives of that, right? It's, can you can you speak about the the media company of one that we see kind mm -hmm. of popping up today? Yeah, well, I think there I think there's a distinction between Nicole Hannah Jones and and the other two you mentioned, and that's because... absolutely. I was trying to, I was trying to be balanced. I'm just not as familiar with the. <laughs> Yeah, well, but it, but it does bring up a, a good point, which is Nicole Hannah-Jones was still, like Walter Durante was, was a product of the New York Times. Like she, she would not have reached the audience without being on that enormous platform, that enormous global stage that is the New York Times. Like her reporting would have might, you know, been covered by a couple of blogs or something if she had published it in some small journal or magazine. And I think the, the point there is that celebrity journalism to me seems very pernicious and dangerous. And again, Walter Durante was the celebrity journalist of the 1930s. He was known around the world, around the country. His books would be reviewed by the Times. He, he himself would make headlines in the New York Times. They would cover him as a subject of reporting. So I think so trend because a journalist should not be that. And it also changes the expectations among journalists themselves for what they should be achieving on a personal scale, you know, where journalism used to be very much a blue collar uh, trade or something closer to, to that than it is today, where now it's very much white collar associated with money. And if you do really well, you're going to be an executive producer on some series with HBO. And that, that becomes the goal. And you're, ch you're, you're changing the incentives where, you know, journalism is really rooted in this idea of accuracy and truth and like sacrificing for the greater good, for the common good. Um, and I think celebrity journalism negates that to a very disturbing extent. But on the other side of things, where you have the news organization of one, as you put it, um, that Barry Weiss doing that, or Andrew Sullivan, Glenn Greenwald, and many others, um, I think that's actually a positive trend because they are staking their own personal reputation at that point. It's their own name. They can't hide behind a, a, a big brand. There's always going to be a byline on everything. So sometimes you might get a New York Times story, a Reuters story, whatever. There's no byline. It's just like no, nobody wrote the story. You know, who, who is it? Don't know. Um, that will never be the case with Andrew Sullivan's Substack or Barry Weiss's Substack. It will always have their name on it. And they will always be on the hook. And I think that helps keep people honest. And it also, I think, um, removes a lot of the, the interest, the corporate interest. Like there's no stock price. Barry Weiss doesn't have, she's not, she's not a publicly traded company like the New York Times is, right? She doesn't have shareholders to serve. She has an audience to serve, which is a good thing, I think, on balance. And you just don't have the tangle of interests and the tangle of power money that come with a massive news organization, especially today, where news organizations are no longer independent. They are, I, I think we'd be very hard pressed to find one major news organization that is not owned by a gigantic corporate parent. I mean, the, the concentration of media has become obscene. So I think the, this is a counterbalance. The, the news organization of one is a counterbalance to that other side of things. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, you know, Sagara Jetty and, and Crystal Ball, they left the hill to go and start their own thing. And they're, they're completely independent, which is great. It does take off some of the guardrails, of course, and you might end up with people saying whatever they want to say because they can because it works for their audience. But I think most people will say, okay, that's, that's that person. I'm going to stay far away from them. Um, if they're saying things that are hateful or racist or, 
inflammatory or false. And then, you know, okay, that's not for me. That's, I think, the benefit. Whereas at the New York Times, you don't really know. You know, if you were reading the Times, you wouldn't know that Jason Blair was a, a fabulist. You would just assume it's the New York Times, so it's, it's all good. And you would read his reporting and you say, okay, that sounds reasonable to me. About the, the news organizations of one, I'm not sure if this is a product of how I personally curate the mostly podcasters or substackers that I, I listen to. It does seem like it's the reporting is more nuanced. It's it's less us versus them. These people are assholes here. Here why we're the good guys, right? Whereas if you read, if you watch, you know, Fox News or MSNBC or NPR, like there's like a constant battle of, of good versus evil, right? And the, the good guys are the in-group who can basically, sorry, the good people are the in-group who can basically do anything they want. And the, the out group are the bad guys who, no matter what they do, even if they're doing something we wanted to do last year, that now becomes like the bad thing, right? Is that true? Or is that just, I happen to be an amazing curator? Cause I doubt it's. Um, I, I think it is true. I think that, um, I think that there is again, a, you know, just there's, first of all, I think these people who are smart people running these independent platforms, they're not in it to go make millions, right? Because if they were trying to make millions, you wouldn't do that. You would do something much more lucrative. So they're in it for the ideas. They're in it for the debate. They're in it for because they have an intellectual curiosity. And that's able to, be, to, to manifest itself in that format because I also think they, they are not as worried about um, page views and time on page and like all the insane metrics that current major news organizations are using to measure quote unquote performance by their journalists. It's like, if you didn't get X number of clicks on your, on your piece, it was a failure. Never mind if it like exposed corporate corruption or, or something worse. So I think these people who are independent, they are really in it for the right reasons by and large. And I think that's what comes out. And also I think they're, they are aware that they're part of a community of people like themselves. So they're able to, and they have to exchange ideas with others, even if they don't agree in principle, they're able to at least carry on a debate because again, they, they, they have to, they have to have some sort of interchange. There has to be a little bit of friction. So you might have, you know, even a, even Ben Shapiro, who's like quite far on, on the right in terms of this conversation, sitting down with a Barry Weiss for a conversation, even though she's center left, and it's like a normal conversation between two yeah. people. And it's very, there's something that it's almost like a salve, you know, especially when someone like Ben, who can be quite incendiary, but in this moment with Barry Weiss, it changes the, it changes the atmosphere a bit. It changes the feeling of the tone of that discussion. And it, it does become dialogue. And that's an incredible thing to see because like we do, there's no dialogue. And in the mainstream corporate media, like it's just, that is gone. So when you do see it, you're like, this is great. I personally believe that most Americans agree on 80 to 90% of things they care about. And, yeah. you know, we are like, all right, let's go find the five things we are going to tear each other apart on and pretend, you know, let's have Rachel Maddow treat Ben Shapiro like he's the antichrist and have Ben Shapiro to Rachel Maddow like she's the antichrist. It was really... <laughs> they both kind of want the same things, right? Like nobody wants school Definitely. shootings to happen. Nobody wants the economy to go to hell, right? You have just a very slightly nuanced differences and we just kind of like blow each other up over. Tucker, over Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow are, are, are known to be, I, I don't know if I'd call them friends, but friendly with one another. Like they've got a long history together in media. You would look at their programs and be like, well, those two must hate each other. No, they're in the same business. They're they're very good. There's at a little bit of horseshoe theory at play here, though, right? Like if you, you could take a Tucker Carlson reports, you know, you could mad lib a Tucker Carlson report into a Rachel Maddow report. Like you just <laughs> you just change the names of the enemies and the villains, and you know, you, you could you could you could roughly get one from the other, right? Yeah. The media itself has been doing that forever. I mean, that's right. how they sell newspapers, right? They, they radicalize content, they drum up an issue. Like, you know, it doesn't matter which side, so long as they're on a side that their competitor is not on and you you do very well. You sell, you sell copies the same way, you grab eyeballs the same way. How much do you think the ad supported model is responsible for? I mean, obviously the, the Salzburger issues go back 
too well before the invent of, you know, Google AdWords mm -hmm. and page tracking and page clicks. However, you know, where we are today, it seems like paid content is better, less breathless, less hysterical and more, you know, nuanced. Like, do you think that simply a shift away from ad supported business models to paid, either paid subscriptions or pay-per-view, which I personally wish was a lot more accessible, would, would that mm -hmm. be part of a solution? Um, I don't think subscriptions necessarily are, and partly because, you know, the, the New York Times, like most of the media has completely abandoned ads as a, as a viable business model. The internet has just pulled a plug on advertising. So they've all gone to subscription. And what one effect, at least, maybe it's not the entire effect, but one part of it is that you end up basically being supported by 3% of your total audience. So if the New York Times is getting, you know, 100 million unique visitors per month to its website, plus however many people picking up a print edition, only about 3% of them are actually paying for that. And they know who that is and they know what they want. So what happens, I think naturally, is probably that the content gets skewed to that audience. And when we think about the 1619 Project, the New York Times has not been shy about talking about the 1619 Project as a centerpiece of their Truth Matters marketing campaign, because it's able to reach a much more activist-minded, younger, um, more woke-oriented uh, audience that really is hungry for that stuff and is going to pay them. It's going to pay them month sure. after month after month, not for a year or two, but for 10 or 20 years. And you got to feed the beast. So I think that is not necessarily going to have that kind of flattening effect. But some of the other stuff might, you mean like the Substack stuff might have. And I do think that paying per article micropayments is, it's one of those things where you're like, you, you just cannot believe it hasn't, it, it's not around, like it hasn't happened yet because it makes so much sense. I wanted to ask you about that because I wonder if I'm just a little bit of an outlier, but every now and then I'll see an article on Financial Times or Wall Street Journal or the New York Times even, or Washington Post. I'm like, I really want to read this article. I do not want to pay the Wall Street Journal $40 a month because honestly, I don't get, I don't see it that often. Right. And usually that takes me a trip to the other archive, archive.is, which is kind of a little internet loophole. Uh, but I'd rather pay for it. I'd rather pay the, here's $5. Sure. Why do you think that hasn't happened? Of course. Um, I think that because they're, they're, first of all, there's just the, the, these are old school companies. When you go and like look at time.com or whatever, and you know, you got like a pop-up over here, video over here, something drops down from the header or something pops up from the footer and you're just like, what is going on here? And then you go to Facebook and you look at this beautiful interface and you're like, okay, this feels sane. And it's because Facebook and Twitter, etc., Uber, whatever, for all their flaws and all their foibles are really obsessed with their users. They're really obsessed with user satisfaction satisfaction. And the media is not. The media is obsessed with itself. The media is obsessed with the New York Times as a brand, with the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. And they don't want to disaggregate. They don't want to unbundle the newspaper because then what happens to the newspaper goes the way of the, the album. We don't need albums. They don't matter. We can just get these individual tracks on Spotify and that's good enough. And you don't sell the filler you, tracks anymore. Yeah, exactly. That's a part of it. And you also really obviate uh, the need for a newspaper itself. And you end up basically with just a bunch of people who are able to sell content on, on this kind of market of, of, you know, more or less fungible content. That's really where they don't want to go. And that's really what they're resisting. And I, I think um, it would be great for news consumers, especially because for the last 20 years, that's what they've been training us to do. They've been training us to consume content that way. Exactly. But I think that's partly the reason Noam Bardeen, who is, who is the former CEO of Waze, the navigation company, he's taken a, a real big stand on this issue. I think he's actually working on a company that's trying to, trying to solve the issue. Don't know if he'll get there because they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to, the media companies don't want to talk about this. But to me, it seems like the most obvious thing, especially because aside from the issue you mentioned, which is like, you might just want to see something from the Washington Post today or an article from wherever else. But what else you could also do with that is bundle content by theme and just be like, deliver everything on the Ukraine to me. I don't care where it comes from. Just give me like 10 articles a day on Ukraine. I'll get everything. That'll be great. And you're like, that would be a dream for a lot of people. But it would um, almost be like a streaming service. Like I pay 20 bucks a month and then they basically pay the New York Times or Washington based on who reads the articles. 
Exactly. And who, who opposed the streaming services? The cable right. companies. Exactly. Because, and it's the same, so, the same analogy. Actually, speaking of, of Ukraine um, and the company of one journalist, right? The Rogans and the Barry Weiss of the world. Whenever you watch CNN or you listen to The Daily, which is the New York Times podcast, right? And they have the they're kind of commercials for themselves. And usually the big theme is like when, you know, major events break down, only the New York Times slash CNN slash has the resources to cover. And, you know, they have like Christian Amanpour and like a bulletproof vest, you know, interviewing someone as bullets <laughs> rain over, you know, the New York Times talking about, they sent five reporters to the middle of Myanmar or something for like six months to figure out mm-hmm. some corruption. Is there an argument that you need these organizations resources to cover like big events like is there still a need for them there is i imagine it's much harder for like barry weiss to cover ukraine right than the new york times can send 10 journalists there and body armor and apcs for as long as they need is, is there something there or is that just more self for sure a hundred a hundred percent there is there absolutely is and it's the resources, it's the, the coordination, it's the institutional knowledge that gets passed along and about like how these things work and how you do it and how you report it and how you break it and all that stuff. I, I definitely think there is. And we see that. We see how deep they can go. We see how they can really change the whole agenda of the entire country by choosing what gets, what gets that kind of treatment and what doesn't. So there for sure is and it's an it's an immense power it's a power that's essential i think for a, fu- a functioning democracy a healthy democracy so that you have that kind of investigative apparatus that is not inside of a government but i think it's also something that we need to be careful it doesn't get used to only political ends of course it's going to be political at some point but if it's only political and it's primarily being used as a political force and what's, what doesn't get covered is part of that equation. It, things are not getting covered. They're not being investigated for political reasons. That's a very big problem. So if I were to try to sum up what we've talked about, it would be that, and this is kind of the, the last question tying up on it, large media organizations, especially the New York Times, are not these paragons of virtue that we think they are. They are products of their incentives and they're you know, products of their self-interest and they need to at least kind of like epistemologically be kept in check, right? If they something you need to, it should be verified. You, know, they, you almost need reporting on reporting. However, there's still a place for them, right? Like you're not, you won't be able to replace the New York Times with, you know, Rogan and Weiss and, and Sullivan. And there, there is a place, but we need to be conscious of their, not even biases, but, but self-interest. Is that, is that, would you say that's fairly accurate? Yeah, it is accurate. But I, I would actually go further and say, I think the media is at a crossroads. And I think they need some, something like a with the, um, the reformation of the Catholic Church to produce something new. I think someone needs to come and nail the... Uh, What's your first thesis? Your first of your 95? Yeah. <laughs> What's top of the um, list? You know, I think, it's, I think it's really just about returning to the notion that there that there is an objective truth out there, that no one person is ever going to apprehend it on his or her own, but that together you can collaboratively approximate it better than any one of you could do without the others. That is like the core thesis of all of journalism in a democracy. Together we can approximate, we can't actually get the core truth, we're not gods, but we can approximate it better than we could if the others weren't involved in the process. And that would be left, right, and center working together. But I, I do think there is this moment where we do need a Hippocratic Oath for journalism, which we don't have. Uh, we don't have any kind of um, professional licensing, which it might be for good reason, actually. But <laughs> there are effects of that, which is that you just get journalists doing crazy stuff all over the show with no accountability that if a doctor or lawyer would had done similar things in their field would be disbarred or have their their license revoked and in journalism they get promoted and um i think we're at this moment where where the journalism needs to separate itself from the media industry and start afresh we need a renaissance kind of mixed metaphors there but i think that's where we are and you know the the epigraph of my book it's a quote from thomas jefferson who said if he had to choose between a government without newspapers or a newspaper newspapers without government, he would choose the latter. 
He would choose newspapers without government. So important was it to him, this notion of a free press, of a fourth estate, that it outweighed the other three estates of government. But we no longer have a fourth estate, in my opinion. We have a politically interested corporate apparatus that is out for itself and not for the common good, not for the public. So I think that this is where we are. That said, they are still hugely important. They are still the function that the purpose they serve is essential. And you can still see that every single day when you get some reporting, you know, from CNN on the Uyghurs, of what's going on with Uyghurs in China. And you're just like, oh my God, how can we let this happen? Or any number of other topics. And you know that they're doing stuff that no one else can do. And they're doing it at great cost to themselves for, for many of these reporters. That's a, a great closing thought. I want to be respectful of your time. We're at right about at one hour. Just wanted to ask if there's anything else you'd like to add. I think, you know, it's, um, I like to just think that we've come to consider this idea in this post-modern cultural environment that we live in. We've come to consider the notion of truth as being quaint. It's not, it's not quaint. It's not a fundamentalist notion. It is a shared resource. And if we return to that idea of truth as a shared resource, as something we can practice, you know, if you develop a practice, even a personal practice of the truth, the great rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi of England, of the UK, he said, if you want to learn how to be honest with yourself, with yourself, start by being honest with others around you. And I think that's a lot of what this is about. Practice the truth, and you will find that you're able to be more of an honest person and truthful to yourself and who you are. I like that. Practice the truth. I could go on for a long time, but I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much, Ashley Rinsberg. The book is The Gray Lady Winked about the New York Times and also a recent piece on The Spectator covering uh, theories of the Wuhan lab leak versus the wet market. Talk, uh, some emails uncovered from Dr. Fauci. It's not inflammatory, unlike most of the coverage on that subject. I don't recall seeing the word traitor anywhere in that article. It's uh, definitely worth a read. Once again, Ashley Rinsberg, the great lady winked. Thank you for your time. And it was a pleasure speaking with you. You as well. Thanks so much.